The Paul Leslie Hour, helping people tell their stories. And now, your host, Paul Leslie. Hey, it's me. Thank you, as always, for joining us here on the Paul Leslie Hour. For those of you who want to support the show, just go to patreon.com slash the Paul Leslie Hour. Ladies and gentlemen, we are joined by one of the most celebrated American guitarists of our time. Jimmy Vivino is a lifelong musician. His experiences as an artist are well-rounded. In addition to guitar playing, he's experienced everything from performing, recording, composing, arranging, producing. A lot of you know him from the time he spent serving as the musical director for the house band on the wildly successful show Conan. Jimmy Vivino and the Basic Cable Band. He's also performed in many bands, too many to mention, including the Black <laughs> Italians. <laughs> and also an interesting thing. I'm laughing already, Paul. It's good. This is great. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> also, a lot of you might be interested to know that he performs with past interviewee Will Lee in the group The Fab Foe performing and perpetuating the great recordings of the Beatles. Jimmy Vivino, it's a great pleasure. I'm glad you're here. Well, to begin with, thank you for having me uh, on. Can we just get this out of the way and just call this radio, please? Because when I was a kid, to be on the radio was the biggest thing that could happen to you. If somebody told me when I was 13 and going to the Fillmore to see bands that I was going to be on a podcast, I would just pass the acid down the aisle from them. So uh, <laughs> I'm not sure. I mean, really, this is radio, isn't it? We're doing like, like live radio. That's what I like to feel like we're doing. It's really great that people, I think that people now can listen to me and you talk and like not have to be doing something else, not have to see us, not have to be seeing a visual, but can actually open their minds to a conversation. So uh, I thank you for having me on. That's a roundabout way of saying thank you. Oh, it's an honor, and I'm glad you said that. I There have been times where I've fooled around with doing interviews on camera and whatnot, but finally I've just, I'm owning it. I'm an audio boy. That's what I am, and that's what, that's what I'm doing. <laughs> we grew up that way. I think you probably are like me, and we grew up listening. I mean, you know, that transistor radio under my pillow is a real thing. It's not a romanticization of something that are, are a cliche. It was a real thing that radio, you know, late at night and, and, and the, uh, the excitement of waiting for a song to come on, you know, <laughs> what's, I don't, that was, there's not much better than that. And then the song comes on. And once Bruce Morrow is through, uh, cousin Brucey is through talking. I never heard an intro to a song till I bought a record. <laughs> they had it down on the AM radio where they would, they would talk about whatever it was, right until the first vocal word came in. So uh, do you remember that? It was, it was an amazing talent the DJ had. I'm glad you mentioned Cousin Brucey. Everyone can listen to oh, him yeah. to this day on Sirius XM. Yeah. But man, what a, you know, we use the phrase uh, radio personality, personality yeah, galore. Yeah, wow. Because Bruce, you know, uh, was a neighbor Will and I, I mean, I can get to the story that Will and I lived in the same building on Mercer Street, right off of 8th Street in New York City. And that's when the Fab Faux started, which, by the way, I'm glad you didn't call a tribute band because we're just we're just sort of more like a chamber ensemble that's playing our classical music. But Bruce, we would see him. Will and I would both see him on the street. He just lived in our neighborhood down there. And he was so and I, I and he was always so nice to me. And we did a lot of shows together. And I would just, you know, the first, he, when I, he was as big a star as whoever he was introducing at Palisades Amusement Park. You know, like if Frankie Valley and the Four Seasons were there or Mitch Ryder, we saw all these great bands there. But Bruce Morrow would come out or Scott Muni, and they were like rock stars back then. So it was, it was wonderful. And I do still know him. And when I go up to Sirius, we say hello. But... Those kind of DJs had a lot of power, as you know, back in back in the day. It, it was a uh, you know they called it payola in some places. Oh yeah, yeah. I, I've heard stories about 
vinyl records that would have a, a nice crisp hundred dollar bill. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah. Well, you know, if it, and I say this about any music that that as you get older, you realize anything that was a hit was a hit for a reason. You know, we're judgmental as kids and young adults, and we're like, oh, I don't like that because everybody else likes it, whatever. But pretty much everything that got on the air was really good in the, back in the day, and it probably still applies today, except that I'm not in tune with a lot of modern music. You know, I, I think that there was enough music made, and I did so much, you know, to, to a point, I, I think into the 70s, you know, is, is where my line is drawn. And I know somebody will get upset about that because at, at one point I just started going backwards from the fifties, you know? <laughs> so there's two directions to go to find great music. You can either be happy to go forward or you can start going backwards and then you're going to fall into a rabbit hole and you're going to meet the most amazing people with collections, vinyl collections. I mean, like Joey Ramone had the greatest 45 collection. You know, and he would talk to me about, hey, do you know this one by the cookies or, you know, this one by, <laughs> you know, and it was almost like a, like a, a you know, a, 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 a challenge. It was almost like that scene in Diner where, you know, you remember in Barry Levinson's Diner where Daniel Stern is quizzing his wife to be with, okay, what's the B side of the record and who wrote it and what color was the label? And, and she had to pass this test, this 45 test. And there's real people like that. Southside Johnny is just like that. We'll be riding in a car and, and Johnny will just be, yeah, and it was on roulette. And the B-side was, you know, and the blank was, and the publisher was, because people looked at these items, these archaeological items, as they, they were like uh, holy grails. We held them in our hands. We read everything on them. We listened to every note. We took it all in. And we never took it for granted because to get your hands on it, wasn't just about going and downloading or going to YouTube or streaming it, or you had to go through something to get a record. So it became important. And that, that's why guys like me and Paul Schaefer, and, and we, we talk about records. You know, Paul taught me, uh, he said, always respect the record. If, you, if you're working with an artist that says, I don't want to do the record, don't listen, because get your band to know the record. As soon as you build it, correctly they will they will come so many artists i worked with the old especially the, what would be called the oldies the benny kings of the world and the you know uh, the chuck berries they they're so used to bands not having it together that that they want to say right away don't do it like the record because they know they're going to be disappointed but when paul and i would do stuff and we would build it like the record every time it would the artist would turn around and go yeah let's go you know so um that is the part of the legacy that that we grew up. Those records were our college. You know, we didn't. Uh, I didn't go to college. I I went to work. <laughs> what you're saying it has my curiosity peaked. Do you have a hell of a record collection? In my head, <laughs> <laughs> a couple divorces, you lose all that vinyl. Plus, you know, what happened is started buying CDs and getting rid of records like dumped stupidly, not knowing this vinyl, you know, rejuvenation would happen. And, uh, you know, but I'll tell you this about the records I had. I learned every note off of them. And, and to me, it's like those were my college reference books. And, uh, you know, you can go back and listen to anything now without ha actually having the record. But I think that I had the records when it was most important, when when they were serving me as my education and uh, my introduction into how, you know, because we would look, see, guys like us that were workers, who arranged it? Where was it cut? Who were the musicians? You know, and then we would start doing takedowns on the chart saying, here's the horn parts, you know, and here's, the, here's what the rhythm section plays. And there's we had our own... I mean, people do this, kids do this now with video games and with computers, but we did it, no, that was our, that was our video game, was a record, you know, 45. And it was also through, you know, it went, it, the thread of the, the record went through, you'd be walking down the street and you'd hear a record coming out of a store, or you'd be in a party when you were a young kid, and somebody would be manning the turntable, 
you know, and putting the records on and, and kind of like setting the mood of the whole party, you know, and then, and then finally the end would come on by the doors and all the kids would be making out for seven minutes because, <laughs> you know, the lights would go out. You'd get scared. It was, uh, <laughs> it was, uh, the records were so important uh, to be abandoned for so long. It's, uh, it was a shame, but now it seems that a, a whole generation is getting into vinyl again, which to me is great because, you know, I could download a record like James Brown Live at the Apollo, but I won't get the liner notes, you know, and I won't get the information that was more important to me almost than the song. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And we can't forget how important songwriters are. Yeah. You know, we want to know, this guy, he was the composer. We want to pull out that Frank yeah. Sinatra record and say, okay, who was Nelson Riddle? Who was Billy May? Right, right. Who was Don, right, who was Don Costa? One of the greatest, you know? And, uh, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, Billy May. My God, and the Dean Martin records that those guys did, too, were almost, Frank Sinatra thought they were more swinging than his, you know? <laughs> <laughs> he was like, Dino, your records are more swinging, you know? And and and, uh, and they are great. They are they are great. And But I think that that was what drove us to want to be in this business. You know, and I, I say this all the time, I've been lucky enough that people have walked out of my collection, my record collection into my life. And I've, it's almost like, it's almost like field of dreams for me. Hmm. And they were, and 99.9% and .9 are exactly what I would expect. And you get a wild card now and then, and you have to, whatever their behavior was that day, who were we to say, that guy was this or that, or that woman was this or that, that day. Like you could meet them on their worst day. So you'll always go back to the record and say, this is what the important thing is. Not, you know, I don't want to know. My experience with them was about the music. So, and I'll say it, the Chuck Berries of the world, as many encounters that I've, I've had all kinds of encounters with, the respect is all, never left for that music and what he gave to music. Maybe the most important writer uh, of the 20th century, I think. With all due respect to Bob Dylan, there's no Bob Dylan without Chuck Berry, you know? And um, someone will say, oh, there's no Chuck Berry without Louis Jordan. Okay, but that's, Chuck Berry did it with a guitar. So to me, <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was closer to home. And the poetry, you know, Bob's, Bob, listen to Bob Dylan's Subterranean Homesick Blues, and I go, oh, that's a lit song, like, that's like working at the mill. You know, that's almost like too much monkey business except with different lyrics. So that role of street poetry, which, which really became rap, you know, that belongs to Chuck Berry. He was, he was uh, connecting to white and black kids at the same time. That was rarely done back in the 50s. I really like what you're touching on here, and that kind of makes me think people have a tendency to put things in boxes and categories. Yeah, like, sure. oh, sure. Chuck Berry, he's a rock singer, but also, man, he could sing a country song like nobody's business. Well, you know, it's just because it, it makes people comfortable to bag people. It always has, you know, and, and rock and roll was totally against that. The whole point of rock and roll was to, to, you know, get out of that bag, get out of bagging people. You know, it's kind of a, a bohemian idea of, of, you know, open up your mind, really. And Chuck Berry... When he made Maybelline, which was originally Ida Red, you know the story with that, right? It was called Ida Red. And then I think it was Leonard Chess or Phil Chess, probably Leonard actually said, that's not good. We need something better. And then he went out and he, I think the receptionist at Chess was putting on some Maybelline makeup. He goes, that's it, Maybelline. You know, it almost sounds like it was written for that horrible Chess, chess whatever it's called, Cadillac Records movie, you know, which is just horrendous. <laughs> but it's true that, no, I had to get that in there. I hate that movie because I know so many of that people. I grew up, you know, worshiping those people. I know so many of them and, and so many of the true stories of, of those people. But once again, I'll back up because it gets the music, hopefully, out to people that never heard it before. But Chuck Berry was thought to be a hillbilly singer by the African-American community in the 50s, when they heard Maybelline, they did not think that he was 
you know, he was uh, an African-American. They said, this is a country. This is like a, a crack, white cracker country, right? But it, at the same time, Jimmy Bowen with, with uh, the Skyliners was never thought to be white. You know, when he did, I don't have anything <laughs> since I don't have you, you, you know, that was not, that had to be a black guy, <laughs> you know, but <laughs> Darlene Love tells me that when she found out he was white, she could not believe her, her eyes that she did a show and the Skyliners were on it. And this guy was singing. And if you're not, if you're out there and you're not familiar to, with one of the greatest records ever made, go get that record and listen to it. You know, maybe the second best doo-wop record after since I don't, uh, I only have eyes for you, rather, which is the greatest, without a doubt. The Flamingos, that is from Mars, that record. But, you know, that is a missing in today's, in the rock and roll, you know, in a lot of people's rock and roll, let's call it chronology, they, they skip the doo-wop as being so important. You know, they start with uh, Bill Haley and Chuck Berry and, and that part, but they don't realize that everything that came before that, that doo-wop that comes right out of gospel, that comes out of the Swan Silvertones, that comes out of the Golden Gate Quartet and comes out of the Dixie Hummingbirds and all the soul church music is really an important element because all the singers were trying to sing like the Bel Canto singers like like Johnny Maestro, you know, and and like uh, Clyde McFadder, those great singers, you know, that all the drifters, the coasters, the five satins, Fred Paris, one of the greatest singers I ever knew, and sat me on a bed at a Holiday Inn and, and sang to me, you know, and wow. I just got it, got it. Like I was 18, backing up, uh, I was in a house band at a Holiday Inn, and I remember Chubby Checker coming through, the, uh, Fred Paris and the Five Satins, Jackie Wilson, and I remember uh, Tony Williams and the Platters coming through. And Tony, Tony Williams sitting, he got up and I was playing piano then. And he sat down right next to me and sat on, on the floor with a tumbler full of gin, you know? And he sang, my prayer. And it was like, oh my God, you know, wow. I'm 18 years old. And I'm like, okay. This is this is rock and roll, you know. This is something, you know. That and these guys were on the down side of their careers, and it had only been only been twenty years or less since they that since they were at the top of the field. But everyone, a gentleman, and everyone, you know, we'd go upstairs and you know have a few drinks or whatever else we were smoking in those days, and those guys would sit on the in the room and sing after the gig. And I would get to sing along with them. And they, were, they probably thought, how cute, you know? Oh, look at him. Bless his heart. <laughs> but I'll tell you what, those kind of memories, we didn't have iPhones, man. We didn't take pictures with each other. We didn't, you know, we didn't impose on the, the personal relationship. Today, everybody, when they meet somebody, wants to put that wall up and say, hey, let's have a picture. Well, that makes you a fan and not, not uh, you know, uh, sort of a... What's the words? You really, you want to be an equal, you know, you want to be a peer of somebody. So um, in those days, I found out that singing really comes from those guys. And they were all church guys. And the women, too, that I worked with at, at that period were, were just amazing. And I found it later with Phoebe Snow and Laura Nero, you know, and all those singers, Martha Reeves, that I worked with and Darlene Love, that they all went to church. You know, and uh, and that that it was soul. That's what was important to rock and roll for a long time. Uh, even Mick Jagger, right? I mean, he's a soul singer, if you ask me. This might be a tough question, but you mentioned a couple people there: Phoebe Snow, Laura Nairo. Oh yeah. Who would you say that you worked with taught you the most about music? Well, let's see. Paul Schaefer taught me about about building a, a band from the bottom up. He said, get the bass and drums right. And then everything else fills in. Because when we first met, I was arranging strings and horns and stuff like that for dates and for shows we were doing together. 
but I didn't really know much about the rhythm section because I was a, a trumpet player and uh, keyboard player turned guitar player. So I always heard music from there. And Paul taught me to listen from the bottom up. So in that, I'm forever grateful in his, uh, his he was so giving and, 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 you know, nurtured me to, to the point where, you know, he kind of knew what I would end up, that I was like him, you know, without being so open about it, but just always helping me. And then Lord Nero was the only, and this is in due, with due respect to everyone that I've ever worked with, the only artist, okay? Meaning that she was from another planet, man. She didn't, Laura didn't live in the same, you know, on the same timeline as the rest of us or the same zone or even plane, like in an astral plane. And she was totally about the music and not, never about the business or anything. And she just, she just stepped in it, you know, with her songs being covered by big singers uh, at the time. But that was never her intent. Where other songwriters I, I, I love and respect, Ellie Greenwich, who taught me so much, and, and, and uh, you know, all of those, those songwriters, Mike Lieber and Jerry, you know, Mike Soler, Jerry Lieber, and, uh, you know, all of them great Bill, uh, Brill building people, they were in it to make money, you know, to write songs and make money. Laura was an artist, and her music, she was like a jazz musician, you know. Uh, she, can I tell you the story of when we met, how weird that was? That, oh, yeah. Uh, it's a really good story. I, I had been working with John Sebastian and Felix Cavallari a lot uh, in one year, and uh, both, you know, Italian heroes. And my Sebastian, of course, is John Pugliese. He speaks fluent Italian. And him and, uh, him and Felix and I were doing some work together, and, and I was working with Felix and him, and they both had worked with Laura and knew Laura. So Laura was kind of coming out of a retirement a bit and looking for somebody to work with. So they both suggested me. And she came down to the Lone Star one night, and I was playing with Benny King, I believe. And, uh, and she stood there with, and Doc Thomas was out there. It was just like one of those great Lone Star cafe nights in New York City. And, you know, she was, you know, all bundled up. She had like a, you know, a, a, a sock cap on, and she didn't look like a, the glamorous, uh, you know, goddess that she was. So she came and went, and I said, oh, I guess that's that. She's not going to work with me. And then I got a call from her. She had the sexiest voice. She was like a the, the earth mother. Uh, Jimmy, it's Laurel. Can you come have Roscoe, who was our friend, connection, bring you to my house in Connecticut so we could talk? So I said, great. So Roscoe drives me up to this house in Danbury, and it's a big, giant house. And you look through the window, and you can see the studio, nice recording studio, beautiful big signway in there we're knocking on the window and nobody's in there and roscoe says oh she's in the little house and i said the little house he goes yeah up the hill there's a little like japanese shack go up there i'll stay down here she just wants to see you anyway so just go up there and knock on the door so i go up and it looks like i mean it looks like a rice paper shack from from a kurosawa movie right and she slides open the door and she goes, and she sits on the floor on one of those Japanese mats with a, what looks like a brick for a pillow. And that's on the floor. And she's got her dog, Emmy. And then there's only one other piece of furniture in the room, a chair, all the way on the opposite side of the room. So she just, you know, gestures to me to sit down at that chair. I sit down at the chair and she goes, I'll be with you in a minute. And she's writing on a paper plate. And she hands me the paper, comes over, hands me the plate, the paper plate. Hmm. And it's written from the, in, from the inside out. So the first word starts right at the center of the plate. And then it spirals out slowly. This, I wish I had it, towards the edges of the paper plate. So I'm there like with a steering wheel reading this, just turning it and reading it. And it's her ideas. It's her ideas for, for us to put together a band with equal amounts of men and women, it would be like three men and three women. And everyone would sing. It'd be a harmony, harmony band, she said. And I'm, by the time I'm through reading this, I'm like, I'm so in. I am so, 
I am so into doing this. <laughs> and then we had a really, after that, just the greatest experience ever, I think. Uh, and there's moments, you know, that you can't talk. But then when there's a long stretch like that, that is just every night, it's magic on stage with her. And it just turned out to be one of my dearest, dearest friends. And I, I'll never forget her. And, and in the end, when I got the Conan gig in 93... She had called this. I think this all happened around 88 or something originally. And we worked together for quite a few years and made a record or two. And, and I got a call in 93 that she wanted to do it again. And I told her I had this gig and she said, well, I'll just, I'm just going to go out then. I'm going to get 12 women, uh, a choir and just me at the piano and 12 women, which I saw, which was just fantastic. That was just, see her ideas were never, what anyone called would call normal, but to her, they were the most normal way to go. And uh, it opened my head not only to music, but to also, you know, not being a concrete thinker. You know what I mean? Right. Well. Well, what an artist. But, and Phoebe, what is the best singer and friend? You know, I worked with a lot of women singers, Darlene Love, just great, you know. People I really love, like Leslie Gore, just a wonderful, wonderful, you know, just there were so many people that were strays from the 60s that had these careers that, that skyrocketed, you know, and they were still around in the 70s and 80s and young. I mean, young, like in their 40s, you know, <laughs> 30s, 40s. They were kids when they started. A lot of them were 16, 17, making records. And uh, that connection with Ellie Greenwich and through Ellie Greenwich, I knew Phil Spector and also the great Shadow Morton, who, if you recall, did all those Shangri-La mini operas, the Shangri-Las. And also one of my favorite records, the, the first uh, Vanilla Fudge record, which was, uh, again, very dramatic. Shadow was like a dramatic guy, you know. Those names, those people, they're not known by a lot of people. A lot of people don't know who you know, I've worked with Bob crew also, who I love from those made those Freddie cannon party records. Oh and yeah. Also made those Mitch Ryder records that sounded like there was a party in the room. And I think that they, they, it, I don't think he had anything to do with it, but there was a, it's almost like quarter to three to Gary Bonds record. That sounds like you you walked into a party and it's one of the greatest, one of the greatest ideas ever. And Bob crew would say, and he made those four seasons records too. And he's saying, everybody come out now and clap your hands and stomp your feet. I said, oh, this is just like, just like the Four Seasons. Or like, or like, where did our love go? You know, by the, by the, by the, by uh, the Supremes, you know, uh, party records. I don't know if they still exist. Maybe the last one may have been Got to Give It Up by Marvin Gaye, right? That sounded like a party going on. There was one name that you mentioned in there that I really hope you can go into a little bit. When I think about times where I got to record a backstage interview, I remember setting up the microphone, knowing that in just a minute, John Sebastian was going to walk in the room. <laughs> what a talent. What a songwriter. Tell us about your time with him. Well, we still have time. You know, we're doing something. In fact, we're doing something this Sunday in New York City at La Poussin Rouge. It's a guitar mash. So John and Dion DiMucci and myself are going to play a, a trio, you know, three tenors. <laughs> we're going to play a couple songs. <laughs> and, uh, you know, John, I have, I have two best friends, Al Cooper and John Sebastian. Uh, I can't tell which, I can't say which is, is is my best best friend because i'm lucky that both of them have have just been just that from when we met till today which is which is you know both around 30 years or 35 years i don't know you know and i was a kid that that's 11 years younger which made a big difference when we were young but now 11 years doesn't seem like a lot you know we're on the same wavelength uh sebastian is, uh, you know, he's another, between him and Al, they were both around when everything started happening, you know, in the village. John lived in the village. 
you know, he says, I used to go to Johnny Hammond's house and he would play on the, on the old wall and sack tape recorder. He would, he, he would play me those, um, you know, those Robert Johnson records before they even came out. We were listening to them after school. And, uh, you know, imagine being in that, that time. I wish those 11 years, I, I would give, I would take 11 years off my life right now to have been with John when, when he was hanging out with Lightning Hopkins and Mississippi John Earth and uh, Howard Wolf and, you know, and, and, and Dylan and somebody just sent me a picture of Paul Rothschild and him with uh, Mike Bloomfield when the Butterfield band started recording for Electra. Everybody was around, you know, John was, was used as a harmonica player on sessions. You know, he was really good friends with Tim Harden, you know, and we, we had a jug band together. Uh, John and I, we, we, we were going out for a while when, when Felix and John and I were all playing together. And John was like, you know, I don't, I don't just, I, I, this is such rehashing this spoonful stuff at this time. This was in the 80s, you know. He said, it's not, it's just not, let's start a jug band. So talk about like Laura, Nero, about, you know, being like out there as far as ideas. So we called Fritz Richmond, who was in the, uh, the original Questkin band the premier wash tub and jug player in the world. Um, and my buddy, James Wormworth, who played, he played, he would play uh, washboard and, you know, percussion. And John and I, two guitars, jug and washboard. Pretty standard stuff. Uh, or Fritz would, Fritz had the wash tub bass too. In fact, when we got into towns, you know, John and I would go to the music store and we'd get, you know, we'd go to get uh, strings and stuff, and, and Fritz and Warren would go to the hardware store to get their equipment. <laughs> that was, that, that's a true story. So anyway, we had that band going for a while, and, and then we did things. We had Paul Rochelle and Annie Rains as members. We had uh, Jeff Muldar. We had Rory Block, who was just an incredible musician. If you don't know who Rory Block is, you should, folks. I'm talking to the people out there. Uh, and Paul Rochelle and Annie Rains too. And um, so it was a revolving door jug band kind of a situation. Maria Moldar sometimes. John, one time, this is, I'll give you a typical Sebastian phone call. Ring, ring, ring. I answer the phone. Hey, it's John. Hey, John, it's Jimmy. Yeah. Uh, guess who's alive? <laughs> that would be, <laughs> that's the opening. That's the opening. Who's alive, John? I can't possibly guess. He goes, Yank Rochelle is alive. Yank Rochelle, really the mandolin player from Chicago. He must be like 90 years old, right? He says, look, he lives in Indianapolis. We're going. I got you a ticket. I got Fritz a ticket, who lives in Portland, and I got Wormy a ticket. We're going. We're going to find him. We're going to record him. He said, really? Yeah, he says, I found a place in Indianapolis that knows him. He goes, and... The Stacy Adams Shoe Factory is in Indianapolis too, so we can go and get some new boot shoes. Because you know, Stacy Adams are the choice of since Robert Johnson was seen with his high tops, you know. So, and Yank Rochelle, R A C H E L, you can look him up. Premier mandolin guitar player. He played with uh, the Three J's, who were uh, Sleepy John Estes, John Hammy Nixon, and uh, James Yank Rochelle. Had a jug band together in the in the probably 30s and 40s. So we found him. So we go to the studio early, and uh, it's an old Masonic temple, you know, and and it's up like a giant flight of steps. It's like 200 steps straight up. We get to the top of the steps, and he said, "How's Yank? Says, you know, how's Yank gonna? Well, the guy says, you know, Yank." He's not going to walk up these steps, man, you know. So we look over, and there's, there's what looks like King Arthur's throne, a wood, a wood chair. It's like a throne with a really high back, part of the Masonic temples, you know, whatever, their ritual. Big throne, giant oak throne. And, uh, that, and we said, what if we bring that downstairs and put him in that and carry him up these stairs? And he says, oh, yeah, we can do that. We've done that before. This guy knew Yank. We'll take the throne. We took the throne downstairs and left it outside. And we went back upstairs and started tuning up and warming up, kind of sweating bullets a little. This guy's actually showing up. So we're looking out the window. You know, we're like on the 
second story after about 200 stairs up and a Cadillac pulls up and out of the Cadillac comes a procession of church ladies with plates of food, pillbox hats, skirts, high heels, ready for church. Like six ladies with, with, with food and they come up the stairs with that food and they lay it out and go, Yank's coming, you know? Whoa, <laughs> it's like the king is coming. So then the next Cadillac pulls up and a guy comes out with sunglasses about six, seven, looking around, you know, I don't know, like he's got, he's got Martin Luther King in the car or something, looking around. Another guy gets out of the other side of the car, another big guy. They go over, they grab the throne and they pull it over to the car and they lift Yank out of the car. Yank's a big man. Yank is well over six feet, but he can't walk, right? So they put him in the throne, and they start carrying him up the stairs. And John and I are looking out the window, and John turns to me and says, we can still run out the back door, man. <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> uh, no, we're going to go through with this, man. So Yank comes up, and he's first he's like ornery. He's like cantankerous and ornery. Why y'all want me up here, you know? I got no voice today. And then we started with our, you know, kid adulation of this guy. He finds out we know a lot about him. We respect him. We love him. And that's important to show. Uh, we start talking and I'll say stupid kid shit like, hey, <laughs> you you played with Hammy Nixon, right? He goes, Hammy played with me. <laughs> <laughs> and then John says, hey, didn't you work with Jim Jackson? Jim Jackson was a dog. He stole my woman. Are we going, uh-oh. How do we get around this show? Oh, Finally, I said, uh, I said, well, tell me about you and Hammy. He says, uh, he says, and this is Brownsville. We're from Brownsville, Tennessee, right? And this is not true. I don't mean to be disrespectful, but this is what he said to me. He says, son, I and Hammy, we toured the whole country, making believe we was Muddy Waters and Little Walter. I said, Really? How did you do that? He said, well, he said, nobody knew what nobody looked like in those days. You know, I said, so what happened? He says, he says, man, we made a pile of bread. <laughs> so this happened. This went on a lot. Cats would find out whose record was big. They go out and do that record and they play a gig, you know, and uh, and it's even, you know, little Walter always says he used to try to catch people, make them believe they were him. But people did it. You know, James Brown. He was hired to be Little Richard now and then, you know, uh, when he was starting out. That's a pretty well-known story, but he would go out as Little Richard. They'd send him out as Little Richard. <laughs> you know, and that's, that's, the way, that's the way it went, you know. Um, uh, he took the gig. So anyway, Yank ended up recording with us and doing some stuff, and he was so sweet. We did a bunch of gigs with him. He lived a couple more years, but... Uh, you know, I always pine for the days that, wow, if I just had known, you know, when I was like 13 and in 1968 and I was going to the Fillmore, I could have kept, I could have gone to the early show and then walked down Bleecker Street and I might have seen Howlin' Wolf playing, you know, or I might have seen, you know, whoever, whoever was down there. But, you know, we had one pilgrimage and that was the Fillmore, but there was so much more going on in New York at the time. And uh, I would live... Like I said, I'd be, I wouldn't mind being 11 years older right now if I could have met and played with a lot of those cats. And that's the thing, that kids shouldn't be afraid to go up to somebody and say, hey, hello, or tell them what you're thinking, or that you play music, or that you liked what you like their music, or what you, you know, I mean, we're, we're, we're very shy when we're young, and then we just go to the show and we leave, but it's, it's about connecting with whoever's left. You know, uh, it's, it'll never happen again. Those guys will never be around again. But to have played with a lot of the guys that from, from the 50s that I did and to have sat with Muddy Waters and Pine Top Perkins and Johnny Johnson and Hubert Sumlin and Sun Seals and Otis Rush and blah, 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 on and on. James Cotton, a good friend. You know, to to have played and met these guys and to not just play with them, but to know them a bit. Uh, they came from a time when it was impossible, you know, compared to you said people whine about a lot of shit today. But th what these guys 
and these women went through the Coco Taylors and even, even Billy Holiday having to come through the back door being the headliner. We, you know, we can never know what that is, but we can look back at it and we can't make believe it didn't happen, but we can certainly be proud of how far we've come from there. And it's better to take that positive stuff and move it forward. I'm hoping you can tell us about the first time you met Al Cooper. <laughs> okay. Let's see, Al. This Al, the Zelig of the music business. Every time, every time something happened, there was Al. You know, there was Al. And Al Cooper was my hero because I was an organ player that started a horn band when I was nine years old. You know, and... And Al Cooper, I, I knew from the Blues Project as an organ player, singer. And then when the Blood, Sweat, and Tears album came out, I, I was a trumpet player also. I took down every note of that that I could for a horn section and started a Blood, Sweat, and Tears band, you know, in 1967. I was 12 by then. And, uh, you know, just Al Cooper was my hero uh, until I got the Blues, I got the, um, the, the Super Session record. And, you know, I had this old hi-fi. It was a stereo, and only half of it worked. One side worked. So I put on that record, and the only side that worked was the Mike Bloomfield side. So I got into Mike Bloomfield, and I was seriously, that record was split left and right, guitar left, organ right. And, uh, and, and I, I just fell in love with Mike Bloomfield then, and I started switching over. So I started playing guitar more when I was a kid, so when I was working with Phoebe Snow, move up to like, you know, 1980 or whatever, working with Phoebe, I was uh, playing double, du I was doing double duty on keyboards and guitar. And, and the rest of the band also was Al Cooper's band without me because Al was playing keyboards and guitar. So uh, I would go see them play with Al and Al would say, Hey, can you, in his Al Cooperness, and if you know him, you know that I do a pretty good Al Cooper. Hey, uh, can you take my guitar until I come back in two weeks and just keep it at your house, and and then when I come back, bring it to the gig. I'm like, yeah. I take it home. It's the Hendrix, the one Hendrix gave him, the black strap, right, that he got at Monterey from Jimmy. So I said, sure, I'm glad to take it home. I even had Muddy Waters guitar for a couple of weeks once for the same reason. So I, you know, and I would always say, man, I'll do anything. I'll carry guitars. I'll get water. I'll run for lunch for these guys. So finally, the keyboard player, there were two keyboards with Phoebe, me and a guy Louis, we called Louis the King. He, uh, he couldn't make a gig with Al. So Al says to the guitar player, Larry, who's a buddy of mine, well, who do you know that can fill in for Louis? He said, Jimmy, you know, Jimmy, he takes your guitar home, that guy. Right. So he says, yeah, OK, have Jimmy come and, and sub. So I subbed for Louie on keyboards and it went really well. And uh, and he was like, hey, man, yeah, it was really good. Thanks. Can you take my guitar home? <laughs> so, uh, and then uh, then Larry, my friend, Larry DeBarry, could not make the gig on guitar. So he sends me. And I show up with my guitar and my amp, and Al says, what the hell are you doing here? You're a keyboard player. I said, tonight I'm a guitar player. <laughs> and he laughed. And he said, well, that's, so you're just like me, huh? You do both. I said, I'm just like you because I modeled myself to be just like you. I knew that you were a guitar player that played keyboards, and, and I learned from you. If you want to work, you got to do a lot of things. So I did that. Then he was a, a couple months go by and he calls me and says, uh, he was living in LA. I want you to come out to LA with me and play with my band. So I did. We opened for, we opened for, uh, BB King at Universal Amphitheater. It was a great band. And so I played with Alan. I stayed with him and we got to be good friends. And by the way, BB had, nine women with plates of food coming to see him <laughs> before the gig. <laughs> Have some chicken, son. The sweetest <laughs> human being. I don't think there was a sweeter human being ever than B.B. King. 
So uh, I, that's where I met Bibi too with Al, who was very gracious to introduce me, and we sat and talked with B for a long time. So then Al calls me uh, later and says, um, I want you to put a new band together with me in New York, which I did. Uh, and we worked together with that seven-piece band for a long time. And then finally one day, he said, what do you want to do? I, you know, I'm getting kind of tired of this. I said, let's do a band like you did with Michael, with guitar, organ, drums, and bass. And he goes, well, oh, you mean I don't play any guitar? I said, exactly. <laughs> I said, you will be the organ player again, and I'll be the guitar player. And if you want, I'll play organ and you play guitar. We'll switch that way. But we don't need this big giant band. I want to get back to that. That super session was my Bible in a lot of ways. And so when I cut my record with Al and Harvey Brooks and Anton Fig, it was the first record I did, Do What Now? It was, you know, a shameless, you know, ripoff of super session. But um, you see, because Al, Al had been working... Uh, there were three bands going at once. Now, Al's band was going. I was with Phoebe. I was with Al. I had my own band, a little big band with, uh, with uh, Harvey Brooks. And Donald Fagan was in that band, too, the little big band. So we all kind of knew each other and hung around and played together. And as we say in the business, we played in different bands together. I mean, we seriously did. And th these were great times in New York. There was work everywhere. We were doing all kinds of great stuff. Uh, you can't get anybody to come out anymore to see the blues. Or the places like the Bottom Line and the Lone Star and Chicago Blues were thriving. I don't know if you remember any of those joints, but they're all gone. You know, so Al Cooper is just, he's another brother. I have two other brothers, and I have Al, and I have John, and, and a couple more people that are, you know, you. I don't know if everyone in the world has friends that are in some ways closer than their actual blood family. But I would have to say with some of these guys, we've had, you know, more intimate relationships as humans than you do with your own family sometimes. It's a, it's a funny thing. I, I never thought of it that way, but it's true. <laughs> we had a past guest on this show, an actor, John Murray. Oh, my buddy. <laughs> <laughs> and he said on the oh, show, he God. said he said something like, if I could come back, <laughs> he said, it's debatable whether I would be Michael Jordan or Jimmy Vivino. <laughs> you know, that's Johnny. That's Johnny. You know, through Johnny, I met Brian first, right? The crotchety patriarch of the family. And then I met Billy. And then I met Joel. You know, we recently did a, a Mark Twain, oh, it's maybe, I don't know, maybe three years ago, actually, a Mark Twain Award at the Kennedy Center for Bill. And everybody was there, the whole family, all the Murrays. And I feel like connect to those guys. Like, you know, Andy Murray, right, was, I had a band with Andy Murray, who was like this great chef. He's, and, and Andy Murray, kind of the middle child of the Murrays, he is what every Bill Murray character is based on. Based on. <laughs> <laughs> Everything Andy does, you can point your finger and say, Billy took that, Billy took that, Billy took that, brilliant, he took that, you know, and, uh, and Andy was the closest with me, and then John. And the amazing thing, Billy got out there and he said, you know, we're, I think, I think it's either 12 or 13 siblings. He goes, and our parents are gone, but the amazing thing is that we're all still alive. You know, none of us have passed. And that's amazing. There's such, such a classic Irish Catholic. Boy, I'm telling you, the cruises, Andy and, and Bill and Brian and me and John and Joel, we go on these, these Irish sweepstake cruises around. They were like a party boat that went around Manhattan. And it was, and Captain Jack McCarthy would be on there, who used to show us Popeye cartoons in the 60s when we were kids. And, and, uh, and also uh, 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 the Merry Mailman, Ray Heatherton, would come on there and sing. He was an Irish tenor. And, uh, and I, 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 I thought maybe, I don't know, I thought the IRA was involved or something. <laughs> it was like some sort of an Irish mafia that I had no clue 
and and the funny thing with the Murrays, there were always Kennedys around too. You know, <laughs> it's just like I met every Kennedy I ever met through the Murrays, and it was uh, there was me being so Italian and Italocentric. I always felt like, oh, we have this thing that no one has. The Irish thing, it may even be stronger because it it got here first. You know, <laughs> it got to America first, and they had to they had to band together to not get their asses kicked way before the Italians even got off the first boat. So to be allowed into that was always fascinating to me. And uh, we're still, Johnny and I are still like buddies, man. You know, and uh, like we're both in L.A. I spoke to him just last week because we lost a good friend. And this is happening more and more now, I guess, as, as we get older. Got to check on each other a little bit more. As I was mentioning at the beginning of the interview, a lot of people know you from Conan. That's a long time to be on television. What did well, being 20, on? I'm, I, by the way, I'm. By the way, in case nobody knows, I'm still working with Conan. I'm the. I'm. You know, I'm there recording. In fact, today I put in about five hours recording cues. I'm there writing and recording music, and that's my job now alone. You know, with my engineer, I don't have a band anymore. But 26 years with the band, that would be considered a, a long run in any business, let alone show business. So we're grateful. But, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, I never, never, never thought that would happen, you know. What did being on TV teach you? Uh, you better smile when that camera comes around. <laughs> <laughs> you know, no brooding like on a blues gig, you know. Uh, what it taught me was, you know, everything I learned before that through, through playing weddings and club dates and whatever was entertainment was more important. You know, people want to be entertained and, and entertaining with the band was important. It was more important than, than, you know, being a virtuoso of any kind of thing or forcing some music on people that they didn't want. You know, I mean, just because you can play it, and I'm talking about jazz, I guess, or something. Or, you know, uh, musicians get to a level sometimes where they're so good at it. They just want everybody to appreciate how good at, they are at it. But sometimes the music that they're so good at is so complicated that it doesn't appeal to people, you know, on that basic level of entertainment. So, you know, does it make any sense to you? you oh, learn yeah. You learn, you learn to, here's what you learn. You learn to, and when kids ask me, what is it, you know, that are like, that are like virtuoso players. I said, I say, man, learn to work. You know, when, when learn to work, learn to do what the job requires, not what, not just force what you do into the job. Because I, I always, I, I try to simplify it in that when a baseball player hits the ball, he doesn't drop down and do his calisthenics in his workout. He plays the game. He runs to first base. It's that simple. I don't care how hard you worked on those scales. If you start bringing all of that, all of those violin studies into your playing, you know, and just like whatever you're doing and it and you're, doesn't fit the gig, you're not, you're not playing music. You know, you have to serve whatever it is. Yes, there's a time and place for everything. I'm not putting anything down, but if people would, if, if young players would learn to work, like what does the gig entail? What does it need? And do that. And that's what I learned from TV. You know, it's all very split second. You have a minimal amount of time to get your point across. So entertaining was a big part of, uh, of my whole life, being an entertainer, because it's uh, a mic, it's, it's kind of a, what do you, you just, just a small you need you have a quick a quick second to get it across you have five seconds going to commercial play something that's you know kicking you have 10 seconds coming back in you're walking somebody on you know you're paying attention after a while it gets to be it gets to be second nature but in, in a way too you have to keep doing other things which i always did people say why well, you have this great gig why are you working so much I see you're doing that TV special, or you're writing for that movie, or you're out there playing with that. You're up on stage with the Allman Brothers, or you're over here with Government Mule with Warren, or you're doing this and that, because, because the job is the job after a while, you know? And then you have to keep 
you have to keep honing your craft outside of the job. But don't you don't have to bring all of that to the job. Does that make any sense to you? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and, and you know, then do everything, but do the right thing when you're supposed to. You know, and that's that's the that's about working. Man, we learned to work because my father always said, you know, you if you want to come and uh, uh, and and haul sheetrock and you know and spackle and and mix cement with me, you can work. Or if you want to learn your you know practice your lesson and and be a musician and work at that, then do that. You know, but either way, it's not easy. It's hard. You know, nothing is easy. And when somebody says to me, uh, "Oh, it's easy," the song, "Oh, it's easy," you'll get it right away. I said, man, nothing is easy. You know, somebody once asked Miles Davis, somebody went to sit in with Miles and said, uh, Miles said, what you want to play? And, and the cat said, oh, let's do something simple, man. Let's just play a blues. And Miles turns and says, man, you better pick something else. <laughs> because, you know, it's <laughs> nothing, nothing is easy that's done right, is it? I mean, really. But it gets to be gratifying when you do it right. <laughs> Very well spoken. I wish all of the guests that I interviewed were as energetic and entertaining as you are. Well, it's passion, <laughs> you know. When it's poked, when you poke that passion bear, it comes out of me like, you know, I, I think that I'll have the passion forever. Like I said earlier to you, I think before we were even rolling, and I said I reside in California but I live everywhere else. You know, we had the golden handcuffs on, as they say in the business, for 25 years. So many things I couldn't do. Now that I'm still working, and I'm grateful that I'm still working with Conan and I have an easier schedule than I had, that only opened the door for me to do more. Will was the same way. I don't know if you spoke with Will Post-Letterman. You know, the door for Will never closed uh, because he's the greatest bass player in the world. Bar none, Sorry, take it up with me outside if you want. But <laughs> when it comes to making music, the guy is unbelievable. He has been an influence and inspiration to me beyond any of my friends, you know, just musician friends. I always, I came to New York City out of New Jersey, and I saw this kid who was like two years older than me. And I was like 19 and he was 21 and he was up there already, Will, doing the highest level work, the most amazing musician I ever saw. And that made me, I could have gone home and said, that's it, I quit, you know? Or I could have said, man, I got that guy, whatever it is that he's doing, I got to figure that out. And uh, that's why the sad foe has it, man. Because when Will Lee asks you to do something, although we lived in the same building, We'd go home on the elevator, me coming from Conan, him coming from Letterman, get on the elevator together. He was three floors up from me. I would be getting off and say, hey, when we start in that Beatle band, and I'd close the door and kind of give him the finger, you know, kind of like, come on, stop messing with me. Why would we want to do that? And he was serious. He was dead serious. And then one night he calls me and says, come upstairs, man. I got some guys I want you to meet. And there they were, the other three, you know, the three guys. Frank and, and Rich and Jack and Will, and I'm there, and I'm all of a sudden pulled into this thing, and Will throws the, the Beatles complete by the book out in front of me and opens it to Because. He says, let's learn Because from Abbey Road. He says, if we can do this, we can do anything. So he says to me, here, you play the harpsichord part. I know you can read and play, play piano. And then Frank, the other guitar, one of the other guitar players anyways, he has the vocals already. He knows what they are. He's dishing out parts. We're moving. Within an hour, we had it We had it not down, but we had some sort of version of it that sounded pretty good. And I walked away from that meeting saying, God, these guys are serious. You know, this isn't a wigs and suits or what I call a wax fruit. My grandmother had, you remember wax fruit? My, my grandmother oh, had yeah. wax fruit. In the house. And I would, as a little kid, always try to take a bite out of it and realize this ain't real. So I call some of those bands wax fruit bands, just my own thing, you know, because that's so disrespectful to what the Beatles were about to me, you know, to put on a, a suit, a Beatle, a collarless jacket, a wig and a nose 
and to do Liverpool accents, you know, and to only, you know, like, like do that kind of a show, that 20 minute Beatles show. And it's like, you're not even playing music really. That's not what the Beatles are about. It's like, the, that's like the Philharmonic putting on powdered wigs and, you know, to play their music, except they're great musicians. And our point was, and Will was to bring the records to the stage, Will said, and, and claim the music back. And it's been, I don't know, 21 years maybe now that we've been doing that. Three times longer than they were together almost. And what the hell, it wasn't being used. <laughs> so we did it. <laughs> you know, we did it. We started doing it. And it never, another thing that never gets old, you know. And the, and the archaeology, <laughs> you know, the exploration, the things that come out. Every year, it seems like Apple is smarter. Apple Records are smart enough to reissue something that's going to generate interest again. It never goes away. I don't think that there was ever a phenomenon quite like that. Uh, the joy of my life is to have met some of the guys and to be friends with Danny Harrison and close with that family. And, and at least Ringo says hello to me when I walk in the room. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I, I had one experience with Paul, which was amazing. We could close with this. This is, this is really this is kind of a surreal dream where I had to put together a band for the Songwriters Hall of Fame. Hal David was the chairman of, who you know from Bacharach David, the lyricist. Oh, yeah. Not very, not very, I mean, a genius and a, and a gentleman and all that, but just not into rock and roll, you know? Not how, you know, he's a, a little above it. So we would put it together and, and I put a band together and we're going to honor on this particular evening. We're going to honor Benny King as he, he's going to be that Benny King is going to be the one. So I said, okay, we learned a bunch of stuff. We got the band together, got a really good band. And then I start looking around the room when we're playing and there's, <laughs> there's James Taylor. There's Brian Wilson. There's Paul McCartney, there's James Brown, there's Bobby Womack, there's Betty King, there's Billy Joel, to name just a few of the people out there. And uh, we go on a break. And uh, Hal David says, uh, yeah, we're going to do a finale. Everyone's going to come up and sing Stand By Me. I said, great. So Schaefer's there. He's, just a, he's not in the band. So I go to my mentor. I say, Paul, what, what do we do? What do we do? Says you've got to come up and play. He goes, I'll come up and play, sure. Because it'll be fun. You'll you'll have fun. He goes, here's what you do. James Brown is going to go up, and and James Brown's going to introduce Benny King. All right. So when James Brown goes up there, hit the first chord. So Papa's got a brand new bag, and I guarantee you he starts singing. I said, really? Bah! Right? Bah! I said, you really? He said, trust me. He said he doesn't want to sing. He told me he doesn't want to sing because I had worked with him before. Mr. Brown, not James Brown. So I do it. And he grabs the mic. Come here, sister. He gets into his thing. He goes, he just did like a verse of it, which was great. And then we're doing stand by me. Yeah, it's beautiful. People are all up there. Everyone's up there. And then it comes time for Paul McCartney to take a verse. And he turns to me and says, like a 12-year-old kid, John never let me sing this once. <laughs> he does his verse. <laughs> and I'm like, that's it. He's still carrying that, okay? This is Paul McCartney, man. The respect for John Lennon and the feeling that he was getting away with something at 50-something years old, whichever he was at the time, is, to me, rock. that's what rock and roll's about. That he's still a kid. That's why Paul's still out there doing it. It's what keeps him going. A song like Stand By Me just moves him. And to the point of there's where you see that love for John Lennon that he couldn't express when John was shot. You know, it was unfair. He could not express it. But it's there, and it's huge. And, uh, and we know who the older brother is forever. You know, there was a story where, um, where uh, uh, the Traveling Wilburys were recording and uh, I can't remember who, which one I heard the story from. But uh, George, 
asked Bob Dylan, oh no, Bob Dylan, I'm sorry. Bob Dylan turns to George when they're listening to a playback or something and says, hey man, you know, I've never been in a band before and, and I wrote my songs and I sang them, but how did you guys decide? I mean, whose songs you were going to do? And George said to Bob, he said, that was easy. We all knew John was the best, you know? And even though George ended up having the greatest back half of a career out of any of those guys, that's what, that's what it was about those guys that nobody has a right to say anything except any of those four guys about their situation, about anything. Yet we all do, but it's none of our business. Those are brothers and brothers speak to each other or say things that have nothing, we have no business getting into. But seeing Paul and hearing him say that about John was, was something I'll never forget. It's beautiful, man. All the listeners can check out jimmyvivino.com and thefabfoe.com, F-A-U-X. Jimmy, sir. Yes, thank you. Thank you very much for spending time with us. Okay, Paul, good luck editing this. (laughs) (laughs) Wise words. (laughs) Yeah. All right. I really appreciate it. Well, cool, man. I'll check it out myself. Oh, much much appreciated, man. I'll I'll speak to you soon, I hope. Oh, yeah, absolutely. All right. If I get to Atlanta, I'll let you know, all right? Please do. That'd be cool. Okay, thanks. All Have right. a good evening. Have a good night. Right, bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bop, bop, dealy, bop, bop, ba-doo, bop, zee, bop, doodly, not Goodbye.